0: Hello and welcome to Soccer 101. My name is Daryl Grove, and I'm joined by a man who recently rewatched a game from 2009. His name is Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hey, Daryl. How are you doing? I am I'm doing much better after after watching this game. It is USA versus Spain, the two thousand nine Confederations Cup semi-final. Here's here's my quick take, Joe, and see if you agree. Not as high definition as I expected.
1: <laughs> I think that's that is very fair to say. I think a lot of us who've been going back to watch some older games have realized just how poor the quality was that maybe we yeah. didn't realize it then, but it's very clear or not clear now.
0: I'm going to guess that in 2009, high def was around, but was kind of a luxury. I don't think I had high def in 2009, and I think the uh, the game that that we saw, if people want to find this, it's on footballia dot net. Um, I believe it's it's visible, but it's a little bit blurry. Right? <laughs>
1: It is, you can make out where the ball is moving, but I posted a clip from this game uh, a week or so ago, and I had at least one person reply, where is the ball? So <laughs> it's possible, it's possible to navigate, but you've got to have your glasses on if you need glasses, you've got to be paying close attention.
0: Yes, I did not take my glasses off for this, for this particular <laughs> viewing. Um, I want to set up the context of this game, Joe, before we get into the details, because I'm really aware that people may not even know this game has happened, or definitely won't know the details. So... Um, First of all, the Confederations Cup is a tournament that does not exist anymore, right? It's not.
1: Yeah, it's it, gone. It's gone. gone.
0: Never to be played again. So Confederations Cup, was the, um, it was the, the upcoming World Cup hosts um, joined by the various confederation champions. So this was South Africa were preparing for the 2010 World Cup. So they were hosting, they were playing. Um, and then the other teams involved were the, the US uh, was there essentially because they'd recently won the gold cup right and spain were there as european champions they were euro 2008 winners and they were on a winning streak uh, it, they were on an absolute tear uh, i can't remember the exact number of games it's 30 something right
1: yeah i believe it was 35 i think wow. they won i think they had like 32 wins and three draws in that time span dating back to 2006 Th- those numbers are close if they're not spot on
0: crazy and the u.s had scraped out of the group scraped out of the group which uh, brazil won their group but the u.s finished level on points with egypt and italy and i think went through on just goals scored because of a, a 3-0 win over egypt in the final group stage game so the u.s were very lucky to be in the semi-final i mean they made their own luck by winning 3-0 but um the, it was a close thing for them to be in the semi-final up against the team that many considered uh, possibly the best in the world right Re- really like like we said the long winning streak long and beaten streak You were 2008 champions, and this Spain team is Xavi, Xavi Alonso, peak Liverpool, Fernando Torres, David Villa in his Valencia heyday just before he moves to Barcelona. It's what uh, Gerard Pique and Carlos Puyol at the back, Sergio Ramos at right back. That was the thing that really got me.
1: That's a throwback, right? You think back to the, the 2010 World Cup with him playing a little bit of outside back and, and like he did earlier on in his career. But now, especially after seeing Sergio Ramos play as a centre-back for Madrid for so many years recently, it's weird. It's sort of a weird flashback throwback yeah. going back to him playing as that outside defender.
0: And it's, uh, Vicente Del Basque, right? He is on his way to uh, making this team world champions in 2010. Um, on the other side of the field, it's Bob Bradley. Bob Bradley coaching the United States, and I'm. Re- what really got me was the youth of some of the players. Because a lot of players that I think of as <laughs> veterans, um, they were young men in this game, right? There's a 19-year-old Josie Altador, um, a 21-year-old, still just as
1: big, I might add.
0: Yes, yes. Um, a 21-year-old Michael Bradley, who was a little skinnier, it seemed in those days. Um, and then we've got a uh, peak mid-20s, Landon Donovan and Clint Dempsey. So lots of really great US men's national team players on display here.
1: Yeah we had we had some of the younger guys I think Michael Bradley may have even had a little bit more hair at that point as well Oh yeah he had um, hair. but but you never know you never know <laughs>
0: he, I mean he had hair on his head that was the that's the big difference right
1: Yeah it's it's actually pretty black and white now that I think about it it's not <laughs> uh, there's not a lot of gray I think Bradley just went from from hair to shiny head, um, uh, yeah. But, I actually think, you know he's, I think
0: he's one of those guys that knew that saw the future coming and shaved it all off, right? So I think, yeah, <laughs> it's a good move from Bradley.
1: Yeah, good move. all he had to do was look to his dad, and I think it, his decision was pretty clear.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so can we go through this? Um, we'll go through this U.S. lineup, uh, Joe. I think it's um, a pretty straightforward. Not straightforward. It's an interesting 4-4-2. Let's put it that way. That could also be a 4-2-2-2. Um, in goal, we've got Tim Howard. Um, Centre backs are Jaden Merritt, partnered by Aguchi and Yewu. They had plenty to do in this game. Uh, your full backs are left back Carlos Bocanegra and right back Jonathan Spector. Um, and actually, I want to pause us there to talk about this. I would argue that's one of the keys to this game is that you had quite defensive players at fullback, and Boccanegra and Spectre were weren't too tempted to get forward and do too much overlapping.
1: No, not at all. Thinking about how we see fullbacks used so much 11 years in the future where we are now, yeah, it's a lot more common to see those guys running forward or, or tucking inside and being used in some innovative, tactical way with the ball. But here from the U.S. and Bob Bradley, we saw them stay home a lot more. Jonathan Spector and, and on the right side and then Carlos Bocanegra, as you mentioned, on the left, they stayed back a lot. They occasionally got forward when the U.S. Yeah. had the ball a little bit in the attack, but even the number of times when the U.S. had you know, this sustained possession higher up the field, those were pretty few and far between. Not impossible to find, but not common either. So those players weren't exactly bombing up and down the flanks. They were staying pretty well home to give demerit and Onyevo a little bit of defensive cover, which definitely made life more difficult for Spain.
0: Yeah, it was nice and tucked in as well, right? The US were quite um, compact, I would argue, but I'm, I'm guessing we'll get, into, we'll get into that when we talk tactical bigger picture. Moving on to midfield, it's a central midfield of Ricardo Clark and Michael Bradley. And this was a thing that Bob Bradley was criticised for throughout his reign of essentially having um, a lot of defensive midfielders. But it's okay because his wide players are Landon Donovan and Clint Dempsey. And I would argue these two are the the most interesting tactical wrinkle of this entire Bob Bradley system.
1: Oh yeah, when you have those two guys starting out wide and then tucking inside into more of a central position, making it look like, as you said, Daryl, more of a four-two-two-two, that's perfect, right? Because it gives you some defensive solidity when those guys can either tuck into central midfield, almost like Atletico Madrid do under Diego Simeone. Yeah. Those guys can tuck in a little bit to give the central midfielders a little cover, or they can stay wider and defend the wings. And then when the U.S. eventually gets the ball and transitions forward or tries to stick some possession attacks, then those two players can tuck in. Mid- maybe one at a time or do something creative to give themselves a little bit of an numerical advantage in midfield and I think we saw that at times throughout this game
0: definitely definitely I mean even on the first goal Dempsey ends up being a sort of uh, a central attacking midfielder right and I'd also argue exactly Landon Donovan's defensive contribution not insignificant on that left flank he put in quite a lot of tackles
1: oh it's funny you mentioned Donovan because I was thinking Dempsey as well so yeah. both of those guys clearly had an impact I can think of a few plays where Clint Dempsey was running back on that right side and giving Spectre a little bit of help to deal with a, a 2v1 that when Dempsey tracked back, it became a 2v2 that the U.S. could then deal with. So both of those guys much more known for their attacking ability, but definitely contributing defensively.
0: And then up front, it's the the brief but magnificent partnership of Charlie Davies <laughs> and Josie Altidore. And I saw this as um, the pace of Charlie Davies usually deployed up high or sometimes spread out wide. And then Josie Altidore, definitely a central striker, but a bit more a bit more willing to drop back and connect play.
1: And I think that's something we've seen from Josie consistently, even though he's only 19 in this game. Yeah. We can notice this all the way up till now, right? He's always had that tendency of wanting to come a little bit deeper, connect play. I mean, even when he's playing with Toronto FC and, and Giovinco as well, it was often Josie Altidore coming in, this big dude coming back into midfield to combine because he likes the ball. And we, yeah. we clearly saw that against Spain. And that helps the US build attacks because they don't always have a lot of numbers in midfield, whether it's the wingers tucking in or Altidore dropping in from his central striker position or as, as a front two. That always helps the U.S. build out and then, and then move the ball forward into the
0: attack. What did you see from Spain? I don't want to go through their entire lineup, but what did you see from them in terms of their, you know, their, their shape and their approach? What were they trying to do? So I think Spain,
1: and a lot of this had to do with how the United States chose to defend them in their 4-4-2 block. But obviously, when you look at Spain, thinking of this PK day, turn of the decade... Spain team, it's, it's wanting to play with the ball, wanting to play through midfield, right? In this match, it was Xabi Alonso as that defensive midfielder. And then he had Xavi and Cesc Fabregas as his kind of outside central midfielders. So much of this game, what I noticed was Xabi Alonso with the ball at his feet in between or right behind Josie Altador and Charlie Davies with the ball, with time and space to pick out Xavi and Cesc Fabregas between yeah. the lines. And I think that's something that Spain went back to over and over and over again. Part of that was because... The United States allowed that to happen with how they set up. They conceded space a little bit higher up the field to Alonso in order to collapse their defensive lines. But, but that was simply because Spain is so darn good, you can't stop them. So you got to give up something one way or the other. And yeah. what Spain chose to do was have the ball with Xabi and then move it forward through him.
0: So I, I saw in your, you wrote a piece for The Athletic um, about this game. And you, you picked out several highlights of that combination of Xabi Alonso, um sort of just in front of his own defense feeding the ball in behind the u.s midfield to chavi right like th- at least three times probably probably a few more times that combination was found but what i noticed going mm-hmm. back and watching this is even though that ball was slipped through the u.s midfield it was always slipped through the tiniest of gaps right it was basically a couple of them looked to me like just the width of a ball is what he managed to uh, to where where he managed to squeeze the ball between bradley and clark down the middle Yeah, it
1: wasn't a huge gap for Xabi Alonso, and part of that is a testament to his skill, obviously. Plenty has been talked about that. But part of that was simply the United States making that pass as difficult as possible, and then when it inevitably made it past clark and bradley in that midfield double pivot in that line of four for the united states then they collapse, right and it's a dangerous area to give up right it's a dangerous space to have to deal with because you yeah. have shabby in that little pocket right behind the midfield two right in front of the two center backs one of the worst people you could possibly want to defend against in that <laughs> spot just because of his skill and overall ability to find a pass but I mean, you look at Spain and and you'll take that, I guess. That's what Bob Bradley was essentially saying with this game plan is we'll allow Xavi to be in that pocket. We'll try not to allow him to take the ball, but on the times that he inevitably is going to have the ball, then we're going to collapse. Michael Bradley is going to drop back a little bit, pressure the ball immediately. Clark will turn and sprint back as soon as that pass breaks the line. And they're going to make life as miserable as they can for Xavi in that pocket of space. And I guess, honestly, I guess it worked because the U.S. did not concede in this match.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing, right? When you see those clips, you think, how did the US survive this game? And honestly, right. watching the game, you think, how did the US survive this game? But in the end, I would argue, there's no one on one with Tim Howard, there's always at least a centre back putting a last ditch tackle in, or a midfielder crowding a ball, or there's always somebody there to put pressure on, right? Which I think, I think is part of the US game plan.
1: And it's a dangerous game, right? Because yeah. you allow these pockets of space to be exploited because you're trying to take the lesser of two evils. But it's still an evil. You're trying to <laughs> do this as best you can, and it takes it takes last ditch tackles from Onyewu or from um, Demerit or Specter or whoever this is, Ricardo Clark. I definitely remember had a sliding challenge in the box to stop a shot in this game. Yes. It takes good saves from Tim Howard as well, but. To beat a team like Spain, number one in the world at the time, who would go on to win the World Cup a year later, you need those moments. You can't ask everything to go perfectly, to not even allow Xavi to get the ball in the first place. That's not realistically going to happen, and I think the U.S. knew that in this game. And they really did come away with their game plan working for the most part.
0: Would you agree that the U.S. stayed um, compact in terms of their width, as it, like narrow, I guess I would call it?
1: Yeah, I think they stayed very narrow. Maybe a couple of exceptions is at the beginning of the match when they extended just a little bit higher up the field to press on some goal kicks in the first 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah, But yeah, even yeah. that, I'd say that's a, a little bit of a different situation just because your pressing setup is going to change a little bit more than your defensive block will. But when the U.S. was back in their 4-4-2 mid-block, the wingers did stay narrow. They all stayed narrow, partially to collapse on that little pocket of space in in front of the center backs. So that way, they weren't too exposed. And then ideally... Daryl, when you have those wingers inside, you funnel the ball out wide and then you press. Inside out yes. and forced to close down the balls in the wings, and you deal with those crosses. When you have Onyewu and Demerit in the middle of the of the box, you're okay with dealing with crosses against David Villa and even
0: Fernando Torres. That was my. Apart from the goals, that was my memory of this game from watching it the first time round. Was Demerit and Onyewu just throwing their bodies at things in all kinds of like orthodox and unorthodox ways? <laughs> There's sometimes just coming across and just getting a foot to a ball and getting it clear. There's sometimes just getting a sort of block tackle in, but there are also like weird diving. Headers, and I believe I remember like an Anyewu scorpion kick clearance. Yep, uh-huh. It was. It's actually. I think of it because I played centre back a lot. I think of it as brave, right? Because sometimes you've got to throw a body part at a ball, and you don't necessarily know where the ball's going to go. And they were never scared to sort of take the risk and just go and get to the ball first.
1: No, I thought the U.S.'s overall collective ability to defend in their box and in their defensive third was excellent, and those center backs played a huge part in that, right? They're obviously giving instructions. Tim Howard likes to yell a little bit as well, he but they're, they're commanding this back line and dealing with so many crosses. That scorpion kick was definitely in my notes from Onyewu. Maybe he showed <laughs> Zlatan a thing or two at AC Milan. Who knows? But that was a lovely a lovely clearance from him that sort of illustrated the United States' This is so cliché, but the bend but don't break. That's really what they did. They yes. allowed themselves to bend and to be bent by Spain, but they would not break. And I think I think that's what you have to do when you're playing a team like Spain, you have to allow yourselves to be flexible, to not to not, you know, control every single bit of space on the field. But then when the ball gets down into your own defensive area, you have to deal with it well. And the US really did. Spain had a few chances, but they they dealt with with Spain's attack fairly well throughout this entire match.
0: And ironically, the U.S. did break in terms of counterattacks, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was terrible. Uh, no, they did. They really did. I think transition attacks were I stand a large, by I stand a by large it. part. I don't blame you, Daryl. The transition <laughs> attacks were a large part of the U.S.'s attacking game plan. When they got the ball, they liked to go forward quickly, trying to pass the ball around a little bit as well. But definitely, the transition was the primary attacking. Yeah,
0: it, it looked to me like get a ball in behind for Charlie Davies, like, and not in a not in a clumsy, like useless ball, but it it, would all, it was always like at least hold on to the ball long enough until you can hit a reasonable quality ball. So at least Spain have to run backwards and defend Charlie Davies. John Harkes didn't like it on the commentary. He was very much against <laughs> it. But I, I think it was the right thing because constantly the balls were just good enough that Spain were worried.
1: And it's a hard balance to find, right? When you win the ball in that low defensive block, maybe it's in your defensive third after Spain have been attacking. It's a hard balance to find of going quickly enough to get the ball out of Spain's high pressure because they weren't all out Liverpool counter pressing the ball, but they were applying pressure to win it back. There's a a ball dominant team. And when you want the ball, you have to do those things. So for the US, you have to play out quickly enough to get the ball away from that press. But then you also have to be slow enough to allow yourself to think, to move the ball up the field progressively and in somewhat of a methodical fashion yeah so i don't think the u.s found that balance every single time and and i don't blame them obviously it's a difficult thing to do it's a very difficult thing to do but the idea of stretching spain allowing them to bring numbers forward and then playing in behind them is a very sound strategy that's where the space is in behind spain's possession and so if you can find charlie davies in behind and then allow the runners maybe that's donovan dempsey and altador to catch up to him then you're really cooking with gas right you have your four most talented attackers high up the field then you're really causing some problems and and there were a few moments of especially early on in the first half. And then as the second half grew and the U.S. found a little more confidence that we saw those attacks start to cause Spain some issues.
0: So I am ready to talk about the U.S.'s two goals, uh, 27th minute goal from Altador, 74th minute goal from Clint Dempsey. But are there any other sort of big picture tactical things that you think we should hit on before, before we get to the goals?
1: I mean, there's only really one thing. I think I went back to look at the stats from this game on FIFA's website and the United States had 44% possession, which I think I did not realize watching this game. It felt like they had a lot less than yeah, that. I would argue so that's another that. thing. That feels wrong to me. It feels wrong to me. I've seen it in a couple of different places, even asking a couple of different people looking back at that statistic. And that's whether or not that's exactly accurate. I think it's, it's interesting to look back at that number and say, man, the US maybe did a slightly better job of controlling the ball than I originally thought they did from watching this game. And so yeah. that's not really a tactical takeaway. That's just something that I think the United States deserves a little bit of credit for. We didn't see them come up with any illustrious like passing combinations leading to a goal. But the skill they had on the squad, especially with Michael Bradley in midfield, Daryl, we still saw those classic Michael Bradley diagonals in this game. And I think yes. we'll get to one of those on a goal here. Absolutely, But it's, it's fascinating to watch his development, even standing and anchoring that central midfield with the ball. That really hasn't changed from now back to 2009. He still was leading that midfield helping them gain some semblance of possession and composure on the ball and I think he deserves some credit for that
0: yeah let's talk Michael Bradley for a second then before we talk about the goals his overall game I thought you see a lot of the um the similar cerebral defending in terms of thinking about the angles and all, all that kind of stuff but then I I the difference I see from from then to now is he seemed more willing and maybe just more athletically able to go and chase things down and get in people's faces
1: Definitely. I think he extended out of that double pivot defensively. Part of it was he knew Clark would cover for him and the yeah. center backs could step forward as well. But he looked very willing to go and step, which I think was an instruction, obviously, from the coaching staff to try not to give as much space to Spain in their possession. But Bradley looked ready to lead that charge, to step high in midfield, maybe even join the front two once or twice in this game temporarily just to close down the ball or to push Spain yeah. backwards. And that's, that's definitely not something that I, I think we see very often from Bradley nowadays, just like you mentioned, Daryl, because of his athletic decline. I'm guessing that's what it is. Maybe it's also not something that Berhalter asked him to do a lot of or Greg Vanney asks him to do a lot of in Toronto or with the United States. But we definitely saw Bradley being a little more active than I'm used to seeing him in defense.
0: I also was way more impressed with Ricardo Clark than a less mature and less... Um, less savvy soccer watcher daryl was first time round. i remember there being a whole narrative about uh, people being not thrilled that ricardo clark was playing all the time red cardo clark was like a nickname that, that went around <laughs> for him and i think he did get a red card in this tournament at some point and i know bradley does like running this game uh, but i i was really impressed with ricardo clark what so daryl what was it
1: that stood out to you about clark's game
0: I thought positionally he'd sort of uh, read what was going on and then sort of athletically had had the legs to go and intercept things and make slide tackles. But then also whenever he had the ball, I saw him get himself out of quite tight spaces with just nice tight little turns and then simple but smart passes.
1: And I think that I don't disagree with you. First of all, on any of that, I was just curious to hear what you had to say. I think that kind of description of Clark almost embodies the whole U.S. performance. Yeah. Right. There wasn't a whole lot of flash in in many ways. Maybe until Benny Failhaber came on late on in this match, which we'll definitely talk about. But oh yeah, Clark was he was pretty efficient with his defensive movement. No major defensive mistakes. Um, a couple things that maybe positionally later on in the match could have, could have been different for him. Maybe not looking up to see a runner. I can think of a a player or two where he maybe missed a defensive, missed a Spain attacker. But overall, like a very solid performance. Not gonna, going to bug the eyes of of a viewer for the first time. Like you mentioned, when you watched this game the first time back then, he didn't stand out to you. But a really solid, relatively efficient performance from Ricardo Clark.
0: It just makes me think that every time there's great US performances, there's always a really hardworking, underrated defensive midfielder in there. Like whether it's um, like Mastroeni in 2002 or Kyle Beckerman in 2014. Um, I think there's there's always an unsung hero that is really underappreciated because they're just not that glamorous. And I think that was Ricardo Clark in 2009.
1: Is that your is that your way of plugging Tyler Adams for twenty
0: twenty two? No, I don't know. Tyler Adams is weird, right? Because he's more flash and people are more excited that's about true. him. That's true. true. What's interesting is if you think of the Greg Berhalter setup, there isn't really a spot for a full on stay home defensive midfielder. So that's the I mean that's the big risk with the Greg Berhalter style. Um, as we're recording this in twenty twenty, that. It's it's not a system that's set up to have a pure destroyer, right? So that that's the big experiment that I feel like we're conducting with Behalter right now. Can the US uh, achieve results without a purely destructive defensive midfielder?
1: And Bob Bradley certainly made it clear that you could maybe not a purely destructive one, but but ones that will sit deep and be positionally sound. He proved that you yeah. can get results with that in this game, and definitely a game plan against Spain that was used by teams, you know, going forward in in facing off against Spain's kind of heyday. I think a lot yeah. of coaches looked at this and said, okay that's a pretty structurally sound way to go. Let's throw it out there and do our best, you know?
0: Hey, this is Daryl cutting in to let you know that today's episode of Soccer 101 is sponsored by ExpressVPN. So Tyler and I have talked about how VPN stands for Virtual Private Network. So a VPN protects your privacy and your security online, but it also lets you take your TV watching game to the next level. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Obviously, for me, this means the UK. I love to watch Doctor Who on Netflix in the UK. If you're not familiar with Doctor Who, give it a try. I recommend starting with the Matt Smith era. For me, that's the best era. For something from back in the day, I also recommend Blackadder. Blackadder is available on UK Netflix. That's Rowan Atkinson in his prime before any of that Mr Bean nonsense. The way it works is ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. And of course, ExpressVPN is not the only VPN in the world. There are hundreds to choose from. I genuinely have tried many, many VPNs and I'm really happy to advertise ExpressVPN because ExpressVPN really is fast. There's never any buffering, never any lag and you can always stream in high definition, no problem and it doesn't just work on your laptop it also works with your phone with your ipad um, smart tvs any type of device that you want to use you can use the expressvpn app to make sure that you can access the content you want from around the world and if you visit this url expressvpn.com soccer you can get an extra three months of expressvpn for free so support the show watch what you want and protect yourself when you go to expressvpn.com soccer Okay, let's get back to 2009. All right, well, let's get to the goals, right? Let's get to the 27th minute Josie Altador goal. And I'm going to start us, Joe, with a player that's on the field for Spain and played in this Confederation's Cup, but was not part of Spain's heyday. So for me, this goal starts with Albert Riera dribbling in from the left wing.
1: Yep, yep. Riera is definitely, he's a guy I had to look up to refamiliarize myself with when I was looking at the Spain team. And sadly, I think... Oh, that's harsh to say, but I think he, he proved a little bit why on this the build up to this goal.
0: Yep, yeah, I think this was his uh, his trial, right? He does not make it to the twenty ten World Cup squad. Coming in from the left, here's why. I th- here's why I wanted to start with this. I think this was an interesting way. Um, part of what the US were doing, I think, uh, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that they would they force Spain to go out wide, and then there wasn't any space for Riera once he's out wide, and he tries to dribble to the middle, where I think he's tackled by. Um, Definitely Donovan first, and then maybe, uh, I think, Clark picks up the loose ball. Essentially, there's just U.S. buddies in the middle. That, that It's too many buddies for Riera to dribble around.
1: Yeah, he doesn't have any space out on that wing. Daryl, you're spot on with the U.S.'s game plan trying to force force play wide and then collapse on the ball when they try to get back into the middle of the field. Riera doesn't have any space, and the U.S. are easily, not easily, but they're able to collapse on the ball, win it, and then try, not necessarily glamorously, but try to play out of Spain's pressure, work the ball into some space, and then go forward from there.
0: Yeah, so, so from here, Michael Bradley... Um, again, unlike modern day Michael Bradley, this young Michael Bradley, he tried to just pick up the ball and drive straight down the middle <laughs> and, and I thought we were away for a second, and he sort of gets stuck right but this happens a couple of times in in this in this build up to this play that the u s drives forward or passes forward, they get tackled. But they, the 50-50 just pops to the feet of a U.S. player, right? So Bradley drives forward, ball pops loose, and it goes to a Gucci on yeh And I, just, I couldn't tell. Do you think this is luck or is this something about what the U.S. are doing? Is it about like positional soundness or is it just pure luck?
1: I mean, I think it's it's mostly luck, but it's also to do with the state of of play, right? The U.S. still have that back line sitting deep. Now Spain is pushing forward and the U.S. has that kind of safety net behind them. And so when the U.S. tries to charge into Spain's kind of wall, the ball just bounces back and there's another U.S. player there to pick it up. So I don't know that that was an intentional like second ball winning tactic. I just think that had to do with where the ball was on the field. And the U.S. definitely did put themselves in position to capitalize on it.
0: And eventually they do capitalize when uh, Bocanegra, at second time of asking, completes a pass to uh, to <laughs> Michael Bradley. Bradley looks up and I believe, I, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I couldn't really tell because of the uh, the standard death feed that we're looking at. I think it's an outside of the football, um, an outside of the foot pass from central midfield out wide to Charlie Davis. Outside of the foot or not?
1: I think it's outside of the foot. It okay. is kind of a fine line to be able to tell, but we're going to go with it. I'm pretty yeah. sure.
0: I like it because it bend. It means that it's going to bend inwards. It's going to bend into play, right? So that's why uh, Charlie Davies is, is able to receive it. What I'm interested in here as well, I think Charlie Davies has pulled out to the left wing, and it seems to be almost a prearranged thing where like, Davies pulls wide, and then there's space then in the center for Dempsey to exploit.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I also think part of it is Sergio Ramos had pushed up higher up the field. So that's the right back for Spain. And so Davies saw that when Ramos went higher up to press. Davies saw that pocket of space. I'm guessing on that the U.S.'s left wing, Spain's right side of defense, drifted out to that space, and that allowed Bradley to find him with that outside of the foot pass. Then the U.S. have pulled Spain's whole defensive shape over to that side because yeah. when Davies moves wide, he can't just sit there unguarded. So you know, then the center backs come over, then Puyol shifts over, then PK shifts over, and that allows space for Altidore to eventually capitalize on.
0: What I love here is the uh, this the series of passes between Davies and Dempsey. Like the first couple are just sort of valleys, right? Valleys back and forth to each other um, over on the left. It's weird that Dempsey's on the left as well. I'm assuming he and Donovan switch positions uh, to defend a corner kick because I went back and looked and they hadn't switched positions prior to this. So I think it's a temporary thing that Dempsey's on the left. Um, so Davies and Dempsey um, exchange passes until eventually Davies uh, slips Dempsey through to sort of run into what I'd call Spain's, behind Spain's midfield and at Spain's defence.
1: Yeah, Dem- that combination play on the left wing is is lovely and it does truly allow Altidore time to get in position yeah. and then work his way into that central space and then Altidore, as as a big dude, even as a teenager, he kind of goes to work from there.
0: He sure does. And I love the Dempsey pass. So if, if you notice, the, uh, as Dempsey's receiving the ball, he's got what? I think it's... I think it's Puyol or Pique and definitely Chabi Alonso closing on him. And Dempsey's shaping. He, he, turns ac- he lets the ball run across him and shapes as if he's going to spread the ball wide. But instead, he sort of reverse cuts back the other way and almost slips it between the two uh, Spain defenders. Instead, it takes a little deflection, right? But it's just good enough to reach Altidore.
1: It's so close to being a perfect assist. Like if that assist had gone cleanly, it would be replayed for yeah. o- over and over and over and over again. It's still a beautiful pass. That body positioning that you pointed out, Daryl, so subtle, but yeah. that allows him to open his hips and then and then still slip the ball through. Yes, it's deflected either by PK or Alonso, but the ball still is able to make it through to Altidore, who's making that kind of diagonal inside run from outside on the right side, maybe the right half space into the middle of the field. Altdor has then taken taken uh, Spain's left back with Captavia. him. That allows yeah, Villa to receive the ball. Dempsey's pass finds him. Altdor receives the ball and he turns, and it's it's a beautiful combination. Starting with Bradley out wide to Davies, combining a little bit with Dempsey, and Dempsey's pass to Altdor is is a beautifully technical play.
0: I'm pretty confident Cap de Villa gets a touch on this as well. As, as Altidore essentially spins him, right? He's just too strong for him and holds him off. But I think Cap de Villa does his best to just get a toe in. But what he ends up doing is just like towing it, perfectly setting it up for Altidore <laughs> yeah. to be in on goal. Yeah, I guess Cap de Villa should get the assist for this.
1: I think we could, we could re-amend, we could amend the FIFA scorebook on that one. It does weirdly <laughs> really help Altidore to have that little extra touch. It puts the ball almost perfectly in front of him and allows him to score up to goal and then kind of put the ball wherever he wants it.
0: So Casillas gets a touch, but Altdorff essentially hammers this bottom left corner.
1: Yeah, no, Casillas at that point, if Altdorff Altdorff has a good shot on goal, it's it's from close to the top of the box still, but he's held off Capitavia, and that allows him to place it past Casillas. Yes, he deflects it, but it's. I mean, I'd be scared if Josie Altdorff at the top of the box with really <laughs> no one between no one between him and me. It's a good chance from Josie, and he puts it away.
0: So yeah, at this point, uh, Josie I think we're, had been signed by Val, signed by Valencia. Uh, but still hadn't, sorry, a but still hadn't played. And we didn't know what his future held, right? Like when Casillas is facing Altidore, he doesn't know that he's going to go to Sunderland and fail at some point. So <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it's Casillas would have been less intimidated.
1: I think he might have been. It's all about mindset. But no, uh, that Valencia blood apparently was enough to put off Casillas <laughs> and, and allow that ball to make it into the back of the net.
0: <laughs> oh, it's my mistake. It's definitely uh, Villarreal that uh, Josie went to, because I know Cap de is there. Oh, that's was there, right. That's right. So there were sort of teammates in that they both had the same employer. Um, all right, so 1-0 to the United States, 27th minute. Do the U.S. change their approach for the remainder of this half and the start of the second half? Or does Spain just step it up? I
1: think it's a little bit of both, right? I feel like when you go up 1-0, especially against a team like Spain, there were no big changes, but naturally, maybe mentally, you're going to take a half step off the gas and say, we have to protect this lead. And so it seemed to me that, I mean, this is probably a classic... You know, things can be two things, copyright Mm -hmm. total soccer show thing where where this where the Spanish national team pushes forward a little bit because they want that goal to get back in the match. But the U.S. then naturally sink just maybe a half yard deeper, which then leads to them conceding a little bit more space and defending a little bit deeper in their half.
0: Yeah, I guess that's my thoughts, at least. Yeah, that that makes sense because there's less incentive to step higher and try and win the ball when you've already got the one nil lead. Right.
1: Exactly. There's there's less reason to purposely expose yourself. At the beginning of the first half, we saw the U.S. press a little bit on goal kicks, especially they were willing to extend because they were looking for that goal. They needed it to advance. Then once they got the goal, albeit not on a pressing situation, they got it from winning the ball on their own half. Naturally, I think they were going to concede a little bit more space to allow Spain just a little more time on the ball to pass around. And they still didn't concede, which was a great win for the U.S., even in just that one small little detail.
0: And here's my take. As, as the second half progresses, when we get to around the 60th minute, the pressure is getting sort of unbearable from Spain, right? It is constant, like, demeritor on Yewu block. It is constantly crosses coming in. It's constantly, like, Spain looking, again, no clear-cut chances, but very, very dangerous um, half chance after half chance after half chance. And I think that uh, Bob Bradley makes a really smart substitution by bringing on Benny Farhaber, which is not the exact player you would think to bring on to defend a lead. No, 100%. I think it was
1: an aggressive substitution from Brad Bradley, and yeah. it was exactly what the United States needed, especially, Daryl, you were just talking about Spain kind of pinning the U.S. back, having chance after chance. Not a great chance after great chance, but certainly they were having possession of the ball. They were working the ball into dangerous areas, moving it into the box, and having an occasional shot. It wasn't sustainable. I don't think it was sustainable for the United States. It's impossible to tell without having the game played out in a different way, but by bringing on Benny Fellhaber, it allowed Bob Bradley to move a player onto the field who had a little bit more skill. He had yeah. energy, he had time, he had a little bit more composure, skill on the ball to actually help the United States win the ball. Once they won it, then he had the composure to pick up his head to do something with the ball that allowed the United States to do something else other than just getting pinned back in their own half.
0: So I believe what he does is send, he brings off Charlie Davis for Benny Fajar, um, Clint Dempsey goes like up front, sort of where Davies was. So it's the classic Altidore-Dempsey partnership, which we saw a lot of um, in the future. Um, and then Benny Farhaber basically plays Dempsey's role right at, at uh, left midfield. Um, and we we can prove that it worked because Benny Falhaber is very heavily involved in the second goal, which Dempsey scores in the seventy fourth minute.
1: Absolutely, there were a couple of great moments of composure and just patience in showing why Benny Hal- Benny Falhaber had the career that he did, especially mm-hmm. in in Major League Soccer at the end of it. Why he was such a valued guy on so many teams is because of his ability to control the game and to do little things with the ball. I mean, you wonder why Bob Bradley brought him back to LA when he moved to Major League Soccer to coach. I mean, you see this guy able to put his Mark on the game, even coming off the bench. He had a real impact, like you said, Daryl, obviously on the second goal, but there were even a couple other instances between the time he came on late in, midway through the second half and then that goal actually happening. Phil quickly proved how quickly he's able to impact a match.
0: So let's get to the let's get to this second goal. So for me it starts with that that Dempsey high kick. You know the one I'm talking about, where he sort of half yeah. intercepts something? And then it's a Michael Bradley, I believe, tackle on David Villa. So once again, Michael Bradley being... Um, he's coming towards peak Michael Bradley here, right? This is the Michael Bradley we, we knew and loved in central midfield. Um, and then I can't remember what happens after this. Where does the ball go after this? Bradley gets the tackle in on Villa.
1: So Bradley has a tackle, and then he almost like shuttles it out wide. I don't know if he gets another touch or... One way or the other, that's all I know. The ball ends up at Benny Failhaber's feet, almost in that left half space. So it's just that simple tackle from Bradley to win the ball high up the field. And then the ball's already in Failhaber's feet. And he kind of does the rest in the attacking third. He's able to control the ball with that composure that we've been talking about. And then he works the ball into the attack. And the rest of the attacking sequence
0: is quite nice as well. The way I remember this as well is Failhaber has a couple of like... He fakes as if he's going to play the through ball. Fakes as if he's going to play the through ball. But I, I don't know if he... He sees that Josie is offside, so pulls out of it. And so it's almost like Josie dictates that it has to be a fake. But wh- whichever it is, PK bites on it. So he absolutely, Fahaba absolutely gets PK to, to bite on a couple of, I'm going to call, I don't know uh, NFL style football very well, but I'm going to call them like pump action fakes. Does that make sense? That's perfect. I think you nailed it, Daryl. Pump
1: fakes for the win. <laughs>
0: pump fakes. That's it. Pump pump fakes from Fahaba. And then he eventually ends up playing it wide to Donovan, which is a, a less dangerous ball than the one I think he was looking for to Josie, but it still ends up being a very dangerous ball. And I, what
1: I love so much about you know, decision-making in this clip is with his first touch, as the ball works works out wide to him from Bradley... He he moves past Sergio Ramos. So that's one one member of Spain's backline that he's taken out of the play. Then he dribbles forward into the center of the field and he draws Puyol and Pique to him as well using those little pump fakes, using all of that movement with the ball. So as he's moving into a central space, he crosses defenders two and three off the list. He <laughs> continues to move towards the right side of that central corridor of the field. And that's when the left back for Spain has to track him as well. So then he has to choose, Spain's left back has to choose whether to mark Donovan, stay wide and give Failhaber space or to step to Failhaber. He chooses to prioritize the ball, which is probably a smart thing to do in this situation. But that movement, in, in just a few seconds, Failhaber's taken out all four members of Spain's back line, and that allows him to find Donovan in space, and then eventually gives Dempsey the time to move to the back post. Yeah, Donovan squares the ball across the face of goal, and Sergio Ramos should have cleared it. I'm not really sure what's happening in Sergio Ramos' head at that point, <laughs> but... Essentially, he, he frustrated Ramos originally. Ramos, yes, should have done better. But by working the ball across the field with with on the dribble out to Donovan on the right wing, that allows Donovan time and space to square it across goal to Dempsey, who eventually finishes. It's a great
0: sequence of Fejabra. I absolutely love it. So this is, I think, again, one of the strengths of that Bob Bradley system that I think wasn't celebrated enough at the time is that um, on the first goal, it's Dempsey, who's supposed to be a wide player, ends up in an attacking midfield spot, sort of creating through the middle. And on the second goal, it's Benny Farhaber who's supposed to be in a wide spot ending up in an attacking midfield spot, causing trouble at the top of the box, just like Clint Dempsey did. Um, I've even, I've seen Bob Bradley talk about this, saying that everybody called his formation like a 4-4-2 empty bucket and made him sound very defensive. Uh, but if if this had been happening, uh, if this had been happening now with the knowledge we have about like how teams play in the Bundesliga, we would have called it a 4-2-2-2 and everybody would have been much more excited about Bradley Ball.
1: 100%. It's easy to look back in hindsight and say, oh, crap we were kind of wrong this yeah. is a much more ingenious system because it's true right i think bob bradley's a good coach and we're seeing that now especially but he knows what he's doing right he has he knows what he's doing in setting up this squad setting up this group of players in that four four two four two 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 maybe that was one too many twos it doesn't matter <laughs> setting up his squad in this way and, and he knows what he's doing with personnel as well we see that with the failhaber sub and we see that with how the four attacking players can can interchange and can can rotate through. Daryl, you and I talked about Josie Altador dropping into midfield we can look at Dempsey rotating different spots Donovan can play anywhere in that front four of sorts yeah. Phil Haber can play centrally or he can play out wide I mean these guys are so fluid with their movement they didn't have a lot of chance to be fluid other than those wingers or the wide midfielders tucking inside in this match there weren't a lot of other positional rotations but in games where the US were able to control the ball a little bit more there was nothing stopping them from having a little bit more fun rotating a little bit more in the attack allowing those front four to really have time and space on the ball to interchange to cause problems for the back four and those are things to an extent that we did definitely see from the U.S.'s front attacking for in this match
0: I I always remember as well a lot of conversations about what's the best use of Dempsey and Donovan for the U.S. national teams because they're both odd players right in many ways they're sort of they're both second strikers in some ways so you can't always use them at the same time or Donovan's maybe a winger but neither of them are pure center forwards and I honestly think that this this system that Bradley invented is basically the best use of both of them for a team that's not going to be the dominant team in every team, in every game they go into.
1: No, and it's a perfect way to, I really do agree with you, Daryl, I think it's a perfect way for those two and with Josie Altidore because he, he does like to have a flexible attacker to play off of as well. So you put him in a two-striker system, maybe at first it's Charlie Davies who can stretch the back line, then maybe you put Dempsey high and allow them to, to have a little bit of time to interplay, to interchange, to you know combine with the ball. I think it's a great use of all three of those players, not just Dempsey and Donovan, but Altidore as well.
0: I've got one final note on this goal, this Clint Dempsey goal. Um, So he does seem to just appear um, and surprise Sergio Ramos (laughs) um, because Ramos thinks he's got maybe time to take a touch and then clear it, right? He doesn't know Dempsey's behind him. So what happens is Ramos takes a touch and Dempsey just swoops in and strikes, right? And it's 2-0 to the USA. Um, but I went back and just watched this goal purely watching Clint Dempsey from the moment he has that high kick on the right wing that sort of starts the interception to the moment he pops up and scores. And what he does is very, very clever. He stays out of everybody's way. He waits until Gerard Piquet um, is focused on Benny Ferhaber. And then he, runs, uh, he basically runs into the box on Piquet's blind side. So Piquet never sees him and then drifts um, to a spot where Ramos can't see him because everybody's looking across at Donovan on the other wing. So he essentially does that clever thing that really top-level players do where they always manage to stay on the blind side of every single defender. And it makes you seem as if you've appeared from nowhere. Not only is it a clever
1: move, just consistently staying on multiple defenders' blind sides, but doing that against Spain. This is yeah, also right? somewhat cliche, but just players that are classically known for checking their shoulders and for having this great awareness of space. For Clint Dempsey to come into the box, even starting his run in midfield, to make those movements and not even be seen by Spain. That's that's a fantastic bit of skill from him, skill from him, and a great pickup by you as well, Daryl.
0: So yeah, I'll, I'll give more of the credit to Demp- Dempsey. Um, so <laughs> That's fair. 60-40. 60-40. 60-40. That seems fair. That seems fair. Um, so one major <laughs> thing that happens toward the end of this game is Michael Bradley in the 87th minute gets himself a red card for a slide tackle. Um, the problem there is that he misses the final, which famously, if people don't know, the US go 2-0 up against Brazil in the final of this game and then lose 3-2. And the always like what might have been is what would have happened if Michael Bradley had been able to to play in that game. So I think this red card... Um, even though it's right at the end of this game and the US is two-nil n- two up, it bears some breaking down. I don't know if this is just a bit me being a bit of a fanboy, but I don't see this as such a bad tackle.
1: No, it really does seem very, very harsh. When I watched this game the first time, I was thinking, you know, kind of out of context, not thinking about it in terms of uh, being a knockout tournament and this being a semifinal. I'm like, oh, it's fine. The US have already got this game in the bag. There's only a few minutes left. They'll be able to seal this one out, even with ten men. And then you step, you take a little step back and you realize, like you said, Daryl, there's still a final to be played. So yeah. looking at it in that context through those glasses, it's a really, really tough break for the U.S. And it seems like a really harsh call from the referee. Yellow, Yellow might have been fair, but I don't think he went in. He didn't go studs up with two feet. He went in with one foot and he... I mean there's no way around it. It's it's a difficult challenge, it's a tough challenge, but a red card seems very harsh yeah. to me at least. I think I agree with you.
0: I would argue it's a reckless challenge as opposed to a dangerous or violent challenge. And that that is the dividing line between a yellow and red card, right? Like I, I saw plenty tackles probably equal to this in this game. Even Ricardo Clark's tackle 2 seconds earlier is not dissimilar to this one.
1: No, not at all. It it doesn't seem like a wise decision from Bradley, which is kind of fun In a a twisted way to look back on and say, yeah, you know, maybe he wouldn't make that decision now just as this old grizzled, not that old, but as a grizzled veteran who's seen a lot of games, maybe he wouldn't make that decision where we are today in the future from this match. But yeah, it's, it's maybe not the wisest decision, but there's not a whole lot separating this challenge from Clark's challenge other than the fact that Bradley kind of took his man down a little bit more and the referee stopped play.
0: So there you go. United States beat Spain 2-0 in a, I'm going to say, a competitive game. I know a lot of people argue that it's the Confederations Cup and it's not that important. Spain were absolutely in it to win it, right?
1: Oh, 100%. You have to be with this squad, allowing them to tune up for the World Cup as well as big. Coming off of that Euro win in 2008, you want to keep that going for as long as you can, or at least I would if I was in a Spanish jersey.
0: Have you you got any other sort of big picture observations from this game or anything else you you want to talk about? I've got a couple of things if you haven't. Why don't you go ahead, Daryl? Okay, so what, the one thing that struck me is thinking about the what might have been after, after watching this game. Hmm. Because the big, thing, the big thing that happens between uh, 2009 Confederations Cup and the 2010 World Cup is Charlie Davies is in that car accident, um, and so he's unable to... He's not available. He's injured. He's not, not ready to go for the 2010 World Cup. And you can, I, rem- I remember at the time, Bob Bradley was essentially looking for replacement strikers who could just provide that same sort of direct pacey threat... To, to replace Davies in this tactical setup because like, as we've talked about I think at length like all of this is quite quite nicely balanced right there's like pace so then Altidore can drop deep and then there's guys can come in in behind and fill the middle like it's all set up perfectly but once you remove that one part of the machine which is Charlie Davies directness um, the, the whole thing was just just less effective by the time we got to 2010 and I think it was Robbie Findlay was the guy that he chose in the end to replace Charlie Davies Davies has just moved to show he was going to be a league un player um, at this point. So th- there really was no replacement for him.
1: No, that's a tough... It's such a tough break to have that loss from this front group. You and I, as you said already, we talked about the balance there. Losing even one piece of that is a difficult blow and also kind of a reminder of where the US still is even today in terms of their depth and their quality difference between them yeah. and top teams. You see Spain in this game they're without Andres and Yesta. And they filled that with Fabregas, right? I mean, it's this <laughs> difficult, difficult break, this difficult situation, but it also does put things again in perspective. Also highlights just how impressive this victory was comparing the United States squad in depth with a giant like Spain. Yeah. But yes, it is sad to look back on what might have been, especially with Davies, that injury and not allowing him to be as big of a part of the US squad moving forward.
0: I've got two other white might have beans. There's Aguchi Onyewu, I think putting a good reminder of him being the absolute, the absolutely uh, perfect defender for this type of game. Like if you just want someone to make sure to hold the middle and backs to the wall, you just want him to go and meet everything and clear everything. He is, he is your man. He's definitely the, the guy uh, that was needed for this game. And I believe he goes to the 2010 World Cup, but he's injured early on and then can't play for anything beyond, I think the first game or two. Um, and I think that was the beginning of the end for Anjewi in terms of injuries br- dragging him down and down and down and down.
1: He was phenomenal in this match. You and I we hit on it as well talking about how the center backs dealt with crosses, but he was everywhere. He popped up everywhere. He traded jerseys after the match with Fernando Torres because I, I think Torres likely respected his defensive ability. You look at Onyewo, his mobile, he's quick, he's fast, he's strong, he's athletic. He can even play a ball out from the back as well, even though we didn't see a lot of it in this match. Did a you great see that ball defender. the ball he
0: played in for Davies? That almost, oh, yeah, absolutely. almost made it. That was that looked like it was coming from Busquets or someone
1: there he has the skill the rare mishmash of skill and athletic ability that makes a center back such a good player and it is a shame like like you said that we weren't able to see him involved as much as kind of this performance would have dictated you know if if all things like injuries aren't a factor
0: and then my two other what might have been Benny Fahaba. Um, I forgot he was such uh, an, um Not integral, but like at least always a, always a part of the squad with Bob Bradley and always uh, ready to contribute something. Um, he goes to the 2010 World Cup. I don't know what happens with Jürgen Klinsmann and Benny Firehaber, but there is definitely something where Klinsmann just did not fancy Firehaber. And his international career was basically cut short in a meaningful way, way, way too early. Especially watching this performance reminded me of what we missed out on with, with Benny Fahaba. It's tragic to see a guy with so much skill
1: and technical ability in in a landscape of players that, w- that are often criticized for a lack of those qualities. Yeah, You look at Fahaba not being able to get minutes under Klinsman. It's tough. It's tough to swallow, right? You look at him and he's like, this guy has everything that you would want. He has the composure on the wall. He has the skill. He's willing to defend as well in wide areas or in central positions. He kind of has he checks all the boxes and yet you're right there was something that went on behind the scenes that didn't allow him to factor in the way that you know maybe even objectively he should have yeah. for the u.s going forward it's a tough pill to swallow especially watching his involvement on that second goal clearly a game changer when he was able to be in positions that suited him
0: and here's my final final what might have been before i bore you with them uh freddy adu freddy adu was on the bench in this game
1: that's crazy. I actually did not know that. I had not yep. looked at the, the entire bench for the United States.
0: Freddie Adu was in this squad. He had just made the move to Europe. I believe, my, my memory is that he had a really good 2008 Olympics. That Olympic team had like Freddie Adu, Michael Bradley, Josie Altador. Really great Olympic team that the US had. Um, and then had moved to either... Benfica or Monaco? Maybe Benfica and then on loan to Monaco. It really was the beginning of the time when we all thought, okay, let's see what this Freddy Adu kid can do. He's on the bench for the US. He's moving to Europe. It all all seemed possible back then.
1: And just a logical excitement, kind of following this match. You come off this really high against Spain, even losing a close final to Brazil, going toe-to-toe. Yes, the group stage was relatively poor from the United States, but really solid performances, great results in the United States. You have a talented kid like Adu coming on the bench, trying to make it big in Europe. Optimism. Optimism is fun, right? I kind of miss yes. that. Um, Looking back on this time, it's a huge contrast to where the United States men's national team was a few years in the future from this moment.
0: Yeah, I think maybe. So again, we're recording this in 2020, uh, What well, March 2020. Um I think we're about to hit a new wave of optimism uh, with all the all the youngsters coming through like over in Germany and all that. Um, so it'll, it'll be good to relive these times a little bit.
1: Absolutely. And maybe who knows, we'll look back a few years from now, listening back to this episode, and we'll look at this kind of time that we're recording as the Dark Ages. And this is just the <laughs> the bridge between that turn of the decade time and, and where we are in the future.
0: <laughs> is there anything else you want to talk
1: about, Joe, from, uh, from this game? Honestly, I think we covered it well. I think tactically... On first watch for me, I was much more inclined to give credit to Spain, but then going back through watching this game again, realizing how the United States set up to concede pockets of space in areas that they could control, making life as difficult for Spain as they reasonably could, that deserves a lot of credit to Bob Bradley and a credit to the United States players who put out who put on this performance. So, yes, a good performance in the United States, something that I, I wasn't expecting to see when going back to, to see this game again. But no, I think we covered the tactical details very, very well in this game, Daryl, and it was a fun thing to go
0: back and watch, especially in this downtime. Uh, yeah, I just want to uh, maybe echo and agree with you that This Spain team, similar to the Barcelona team of this era, this Spain team was kind of unplayable. You had to accept that they were going to dominate games and they were going to have the ball. And there was no way to stop them doing that. And so I think what the U.S. landed on in in this game, it's always a high risk risk proposition, right? Because there's no way to turn the tables and you be the team with the ball all the time. Um, But what the U.S. came up with in this game was absolutely perfect. And the evidence is in the scoreline.
1: It is, absolutely. And that's Hmm. not to say that Spain didn't have chances and they didn't look good for large portions of the game. But as we both kind of, we've said at this point, that's inevitable, right? So that the U.S. was able to respond in the way that they did to those chances, players stepping up in a big way and the team collapsing as quickly as they would when the ball would penetrate them. That's a real testament to the squad and and something super fun to look back on.
0: All right, so we are going to close out this episode of Succo 101. Joe, I would ask you to follow my lead when I say um, I've been Daryl Grove. And I've been Joe Lowry. Thank you for listening to Soccer 101.